episode of Accountability Talks with AGA. I'm your host, Paul Marshall. Today, we'll be speaking with Lucy Mungle from Department of Justice and Doug Godeski from the Corporation for National and Community Service, all about grants management. Good morning. Welcome to the podcast. So today we have Lucy and Doug, and we're going to talk about grants. This should be an exciting conversation today. Um, so I want to start off with Lucy, if you could just give a little background of what you do over at DOJ. Sure. Um, my name is Lucy Mungle, and I am responsible for risk management over at the Office of Justice Programs. Um, that role includes oversight of all the monitoring and grant processes for the Office of Justice Programs and also uh, doing the risk assessment uh, in addition for the COPS Office and the Office of Violence Against Women. Great. And Doug, tell us a little about yourself. Sure. Uh, thanks, Paul. I, I'm a senior grants officer at the Corporation for National and Community Service. We're uh, better known as the AmeriCorps and Senior Corps and VISTA programs. Um, we have operations senior grants officers. I was one of those. Uh, I'm currently a senior grants officer who uh, handles a staff that does the back office configuration of our grant system. So we're, we're the heart of um, the tools that grants officers use to uh, uh, get the grants awarded from the financial perspective and reviews, but also to program them for the programmatic reviews, the competitions and uh, performance criteria that the, the uh, program staff expect. Great, okay. Well, let's jump in here. Uh, I think one thing I wanted to ask you all is uh, kind of a general question, we'll get to more specifics, but you know, what do you feel are some of the essential skills, the capabilities that a grants officer really should have to be effective? Maybe Doug, you want to kick it off for us? Sure. Well, I, I participated in a project uh, that AGA uh, did about three or four years ago, I believe it is. We, we developed a, an online self-assessment or um, candidate assessment tool mm -hmm. that you can get to through the uh, AGA tools website. It's on the website now, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. Great. And uh, what the, the good thing, the unique thing about that was uh, the team that developed that tool used the um, National Grants Management Association's set of principles and expectations for a qualified professional grants manager. Mm -hmm. In fact, they now have a test that's modeled after the same um, series of self-assessments that you can do using the tool. Right. So um, to the question of what makes a great, a good grant manager is right. that there's no degree that you walk out of school with. Right, exactly. So we, we, we go after two types of uh, ideal candidates. One is the recent college graduate mm. with uh, an aptitude for business, an aptitude for finance, likes to stick with rules and, uh, and, and can re recall and recite rules, uh, and likes to work independently. The other type of candidate we go after is the experienced grants officer who right. usually has served at another agency, put in a few years, they're ripe for a promotion, mm -hmm. they'll compete, and uh, if we're fortunate enough that our salary base at the moment will give them a bump in salary, they'll, they'll jump to our agency and we lose grants officers for the same reasons. Right. So, um, because fundamentally, grant, uh, the, the grant life cycle is fundamentally the same throughout every federal agency, so the portability of a grants officer is, is, is key. Right, I mean the subject matter will change from agency to agency, program to program, but Correct. You know, the but basic skill set. Because we, most agencies segregate programmatic responsibilities from grant administration financial responsibilities, 
the portability of the administrative financial skill set mm -hmm. is much higher than the portability of the programmatic skill set. Right. So, so Lucy, is that the same for you? Is that what you've seen? Well, our, our agency is a little bit different oh, okay. in, in that, uh, and, and it's interesting because COPS is actually different from OVW and OJP. Uh, so our agency between COPS and, and, well, OJP and OVW, our grant managers do full life cycle. So they'll, ah. they'll handle everything all the way from pre-award through post-award mo post monitoring and closeout and all the monitoring. So they're going to do mm. pro programmatic and financial and administrative monitoring. Right. And and then we have our um, our OCFO does grants of financial monitoring for COPS, OVW, and OJP. So what we do is we have our our checklist covers all of that, and our financial and administrative questions are are built so that really it's part of our our risk management. So we're looking at where there might be issues that we need to get the more experts involved. Uh, so it's it's a little bit different. And so our grant managers also have to have you know some good programmatic management experience as well. Right, and that's something I mean, s folks might come up as financial people or budget people or even a program person, but it's hard to find a combination of everything like that. Yes, and and it's a mix. We have yeah. we have social scientists, we have uh, accountants, uh, you know, we have a variety of people who are in that role. And, and Lucy's bringing up a great point, and I know we could spend the entire day talking <laughs> about. Um, the, the, the candidate, the, what are good candidates right. for different agencies. Right. So I, I, it's very interesting that Lucy pointed that out because when I was at the Department of Interior, my, my first years um, as a grants officer, I, I was an uh, environmental scientist mm -hmm. in a grant program that became uh, state operated. We had to learn the skill set, the financial business skill set, mm -hmm. which was essentially reading the regulations rules and using some common sense, sure. well written. And combining that with our um, science background, we were program officer, grant officer combined at Interior, and, and they are, they still are today. Then that block of time I spent at HHS, where HHS has a optive by optives, uh, optive meaning um, uh, administration for children and families, uh, uh, FDA, and each optive must mm -hmm. have a segregated grants officer from uh, program officer role. They have it across the board. So now my agency is going closer to Lucy's uh, model. We just announced this week a um, expectation. We're going to blend that program position with the grants officer position, base them in the field, and more do more rules and tools in the in mm -hmm. the headquarters location. So those I think you were kind of Lucy speaking to the checklists and the yes. uh, guidance. So we're going to put a more emphasis on those checklists and guidance over the next few years looking for that blended position and placing it in the field closer to the, the work where they're, they're accountable for both types of work. Being a grant manager is an interesting role because you have to walk this fine line between your fiscal responsibility mm -hmm. as a, an, an agent of the United States government and, and a fiscal agent for you know, the, the taxpayer, making sure that they're getting value right. out of their taxes, and also helping the, that grantee and helping them to be successful because that's really where the value comes is helping them to be successful. Monitoring is not really kind of a gotcha. It's mm. really like we want to make sure everything's in line so that you're doing what you need to do so that we can get this, this project done, which is supposed to have mm. a benefit right. to society as a whole. Right. Yeah, and actually uh, I was at an uh, AGA event last night for Northern Virginia. It was their 50th anniversary gala and I uh, ran into a 
grants officer just randomly and I was I thought it was interesting she was saying that a lot of the questions that she'll get are primarily about folks saying is this a proper use of the funds that I got you know can I spend my money on this what can I what can I what can I do what can I not do um, I mean what would you say are the most common things you all hear from grantees you know what kind of questions do you guys get Entertainment is always there. Entertainment, yes, entertainment. <laughs> entertainment uh, the the clear cut ones, the the clear cut no no you can't sure. fit into the food refreshments and things like that. It's it's only we the classic answer is that only when you can justify it as a necessary, reasonable, and yeah. allocable cost to the grant. And and there are circumstances such as award ceremonies, graduation ceremonies, right. when they're designed Makes into sense. the program. Mm -hmm. HHS might have mm -hmm. a, I recall a program for uh, single dads to get them in, um, in in certain areas. They were to encourage them to show up for the the coaching and the counseling. Right. Having a meal there was important. Yeah. So that was integrated into the program. So when food and refreshments were integrated into the program for for a specific necessary reasonable purpose, right. they're allowable. Yes. But but just yeah. having them there on the shelf but just to have, was, right. was the, the common, um, a very common uh, question. Which kind of ties into all of the issues we've had in recent years on conferences. Uh, yeah. You know, if, uh, the food mm -hmm. is, is, you know, you, you had the, I, I don't even want to say the muffin thing, um, <laughs> but because it wasn't really a $16 muffin, I'm just going to say that. <laughs> um, but it, it does all tie in, and, and you're right. In some cases, you know, the, the food is appropriate. Like in our mentoring programs, when, when you have children involved, you obviously can't have them involved for a long period of time without providing food because they can't go out and get it themselves. Absolutely. Uh, so mm -hmm. those are the types of things we see. We also see a lot of questions on uh, appropriate time and attendance uh, tracking. Oh, right. That is one of the most common ones, mm -hmm. um, and making sure that they are tracking the actual time. Uh, what we see a lot is they'll 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 allocate based on budget, and that that just it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So they have to have those time and attendance, and then they have to make sure that they're allocating based on actual hours spent. And, and Lucy's touched on something. If you walk away with anything, if you're if you're a recipient of a grant and you walk away with anything today, um, realizing that having solid time and attendance tracking systems. Uh, that account for all the hours charged to the grant is is just simply the only way to go unless you really believe you can uh, come up with a uh, time allocation study and 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 uh, repeat that have a program to use an alternate timekeeping system uh, that that will withstand the scrutiny in an audit and and I've very rarely seen that after Those hundreds of are rare, rare. Really rare. <laughs> and they're very complex yes. the only time <laughs> I've seen that used is at, at the state level mm. um, and it's a very very complex you need to have statisticians involved yes and and it's it's not something that you know your average not-for-profit should venture into right, right. it's Makes so sense. much simpler just to keep a timesheet yes record them uh, even if it's not the practice throughout your organization you've received the federal grant dollars do that, you're, you're, you're going to be solid. It's a lot less trouble than going through what will be a full disallowance. If you can't yes. defend those hours mm -hmm. as having been served and worked towards the grant purpose, uh, there's there's no way out of getting that disallowance. Um, you know, uh, and that's quite a burden to pay back all those hours. Right. No, and actually, I started off in a uh, government employee in the OIG for education, and I did some grant audits, and mm -hmm. very uh, fascinating and. You know, going back to folks asking these questions, that's good. Those are the ones that are probably doing things right. The ones that don't ask questions <laughs> might have to worry about. Exactly. But, so um, you, you bring up the OIG. One of the other common things we're seeing this more recently is, you know, that there's kind of a focus on 
performance and, mm -hmm. and getting to the, the program goals. So oh, yeah. what we're seeing too is a very common OIG finding is that all that performance data that's being submitted, mm -hmm. the, the, they'll go out and do an audit and there's no supporting that's documentation. Support. Mm -hmm. Right. So right. that's something that we're seeing more and more and we're trying to emphasize that in our monitoring. Absolutely. And, and I'll integrate a little bit about this. Um, I'll merge the, the ideal grants officer or the grants officer skill set with mm -hmm. this question of cost questions. Yeah. Procurement is another yes. area. Folks will, folks will um, the, the worst thing grantees can practice is latching on to words that are used in communicating with their grants officer that they'll take and take as an authorization to sole source procure. Hmm avoid competition, to expedite the spending of the funds. Right. And, and the bottom line becomes, particularly with a, a lot more clarity in the common uh, rules that we, the, the uh, uniform guidance that was published a few years ago is that you must compete every federal dollar unless you've got solid policies and procedures on when you'll have non-competitive um, thresholds and, right. and the various micro-purchase thresholds and things mm -hmm. like that. So there's, there's a fairly clear, clean set of rules that you can structure your policies under. If you don't have well-structured policies that you follow every time you spend a federal dollar for through procurements, you've got to do full and open competition and uh, have right. all that documented. And it's pretty much, uh, I guess I'm gonna circle back you. You'll yeah. eventually have to have a practice to document all those things if you're gonna, uh, if, if you spend the dollars without those records, they too are open to being disallowed. They'll be disallowed. Right. And one point of confusion that we've seen on sole source is usually there's a threshold and it's usually the simplified acquisition threshold mm -hmm. above which they need to get prior approval from, from the federal agency okay. in order right. to do a sole source uh, procurement. But what we've seen is grantees are thinking that underneath that they don't need to have the documentation which is untrue. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> under 150,000, because I think it's 150,000 right now is the simplified acquisition threshold, but under 150,000, if you're going to do sole source, you still need to make sure that it meets those requirements for a sole source. Right. right. And an emergency is not you ran out of time and you need to get it done in the next week or so. It's, it's a public emergency. It's like a declared disaster. It right. has to be an, an emergency. And sole source must meet those requirements and it must be documented in your files even if it's under that, that threshold. So, so a quali high quality grants officer doesn't push buttons. They, they mm. can hear these, they can see the problem that can develop, they can coach the grantee, help right. them avoid the problem, and not put, put words out in messages that will invite the grantee to misinterpret or think that they can yes. then have an authorization to do something that isn't there. So it's it's easy to uh, it's it's very important to have a skill set that you, you you can use your business skills to coach that grantee to avoid these problems. Right. A lot of it's communication mm -hmm. skills. Mm -hmm. Yeah, articulate yes. clearly what they can and can't do, but it's not, you know, just don't put out a statement and don't explain it or have any, because like you said, they could just say, oh, that means I can just go purchase whatever I want. Exactly, and you, ha you have to be willing to be a bad guy sometimes. You, <laughs> yes. you, 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 have, to, you right. have to deliver bad news. Sure. And uh, delivering bad news on the front end is so much nicer than <laughs> delivering bad news on the back end. OIG comes, yes. yeah. So uh, let's talk a little bit about risk. Um, so risk assessments, uh, definitely monitoring and risk assessments, not just grantees, sub-grantees is always a hot topic. Yes. Um, and actually, Lucy, you're, you're, you're involved in risk management at your agency as well. So I'd, let's start with you. See, you know, give us some insights into risk management and the importance of that with grants. Sure. Um, so in, in an agency, I mean, it, 
at any one point in time, you have more open awards than you can possibly monitor. Mm -hmm. And so the, the idea of risk assessment is where do you put your limited resources, which should be where your highest risk is. Right. So we go through a process uh, where we assess all of our open awards and we score them. And we have probably about 35-ish um, risk criteria that, that we use. And, and we <laughs> evaluate that on an annual basis and make sure that the, they, they're the right risk criteria. We go through uh, an analysis also, what we call kind of a look back analysis mm -hmm. to make sure that our criteria is predictive. Right. So we then score them. We determine who's high, medium, and low. And based on that, then we set our monitoring plan. And we also score our grantees. So mm -hmm. each grant has a score, and each grantee has a score, and then we also roll that up to our solicitations and programs. So we have different tools that we're using. So in cer certain programs themselves are higher risk because they're new or they're unique or yeah. whatever. So we might want to do something, what we call like a mini grant stat. I'm sure you've heard of like the, the comp stat programs and stuff that cities use. And mm -hmm. we have a similar process that we do. And it's, it's I, the idea is to manage, actively manage that program to get the, the program level performance that we're looking for. Right. So we've done it with body-worn cameras. We've done it with some, some other mm -hmm. programs. Uh, and then we also, uh, our OCFO is usually using that grantee risk because they're looking at an entity level when they're deciding who they're going to go out and monitor. And then our grant managers are looking at their individual awards. And then we look at that on an overall basis and, and adjust. Well, and with the, so with the grantees and the risk assessments, wh when do you do that? Before you give the grant out? After? The, you know, what? Well, that's a good question. We do it both. Do it both. Oh, so, makes sense. So pre-award risk assessments are now required in the uniform guidance. Mm -hmm. And when that came out, we had actually started our post-award risk assessment process years ago. Uh, back in like 2009, 2010 timeframe, and it's matured over the years. And then when the pre-award risk assessment process was put in the uniform guidance, we leveraged that, and we also added a few things into it. So we're pulling in uh, single audit data mm -hmm. in, into yep. from the Federal Audit Clearinghouse. We're also doing a, we, what we call financial capability questionnaire that each applicant has to answer, mm -hmm. and that gets pulled in automatically and gets scored. Uh, we pull in some Dun & Bradstreet information, sure. and we also pull in information from, from usaspending.gov. And what that gives us, for, for someone that's a new applicant to us, but maybe they have other federal awards, yeah then if they have other federal awards, we, we know they at least know something about managing a, a federal award. And so right. it's a little bit less risk than someone who doesn't have any experience at all. So we assess that and, and we score it on, on the pre-award level. And if they're going to award to someone who's considered a high pre-award risk, right. that has to be discussed in our funding recommendation memo. Hmm. That, you know, we understand that this particular applicant is a higher risk uh, but this is what we, we're going to accept this risk, and this mm -hmm. is why we're going to accept this risk because we think the the benefit is greater than than the risk. And here's what we're going to do to manage that. That's risk. what I was going to say. Probably you know, uh, more monitoring or something uh, additional. Additional monitoring. Some sometimes we'll uh, well a lot of times what we'll do is um, we might say to the grantee, listen, before you draw your first dollar, you need to pass this online grants financial management training yeah. that we have. Okay. Yeah. And they, you know, they have to pass it with a score of at least 70% in order to, to draw that first dollar. Okay. Or we might put other special conditions on the award, say if we know they're going to do subrecipients and they don't have subrecipient policies and procedures in place, mm. we'll say, listen, 
you can't draw any money until we see those subrecipient policies and procedures. Oh, that's good. So those okay. are some of the tools that we use. And then on the, on the post-award side, mm -hmm. we, we take a look at that risk too, and we're now trying to incorporate some risk management into our closeout process. Okay. Um, because in our closeouts, we, what we're seeing is that sometimes there's not enough support for that final FFR figure. Mm. So we're trying to develop a, a risk process to identify those and, and go out and, and, great, and take a look great. at those. Everything Lucy has just described is identical, uh, happening, I'm sure, in different manners at our agency, but right. and all other agencies I'm exposed to are doing the things Lucy just described. So without repeating them, I think the, the, uh, to build upon that would be the pass-through uh, re regulations on, in the uniform guidance. Right. Where our, when you're a prime grantee getting the direct funds from the government you, and you're making sub-awards, you have to essentially have these same practices yes. in your policies mm. uh, and the, you don't get to scale them down you have to have them at uh, the ideal and expectation is they're as rigorous as Lucy described at the federal level so that that's a big change that the uniform guidance uh, clarified uh, as far as pass-through expectations uh, for me that all feeds into knowledge management and that's one of the challenges in my my team is that we're we're not only trying to work in a uh, keep our grant system uh, tuned to share information across our programs, but to there's, there's a current attempt to build a new grant system that can better share that knowledge and better predict these, um, these outcomes and, and do a lot of the, the work that I, I think probably Lucy would agree that a lot of this analysis is uh, just hard uh, experience-based thought process to examine what the, the numbers and the outcomes you're seeing and make judgments. It's not It's not our artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. but the I think the holy grail will be where we can get the grant systems that can can mine the data across tens of years of grant making yes. and then even tens of years at other agencies to look for patterns and, and the predictability of failures and uh, fraud, waste, and abuse is so difficult to get to, yet mm -hmm. our IG is constantly emphasizing how uh, when they do find something that has gone wrong, how could you have not known is their first question. Right. And uh, it's, it's, it's still unproven mm -hmm. that we've got the fine-tuned tools to predict failure. We, we simply don't. Well, and, and uh, but we do our, we're doing our, our due diligence. Right. By, you know. Well, I think also, too, I mean, from the IG's per perspective, I mean, I, I think people think there's a lot more fraud out there than there really is. Correct. I think a lot of it's just mistakes or people aren't trained properly or they don't know what they're doing, but yes. it's not, I'm just going to steal some money here. That's, that's a more, lot, more, lot rarer than people think. Oh, yeah. Well, and those are, the, the interesting thing is when it is fraud, you almost have to have a forensic accountant to find it. Sure. Uh, and yeah, and where <laughs> we do find it, it's serendipitous. Mm -hmm. So you stumble across it. Yes. And that's right. why on-site monitoring is so important oh, yeah. <laughs> because you do get those serendipitous conversations and then something stumbles out yeah. and you're like, oh. Doesn't sound right. Exactly. Can, you, exactly. can you tell me more about that? No. Uh, so so that's, um, that's really something very interesting. But you, know, you touched on something with uh, doing a new system. We're going through that same process, trying to get to something that, you know, and like I said, we talked about whether or not our risk assessment, we're trying to see if it's predictive. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the things that we've also talked about is, you know, looking at draw patterns. 
you know, and, okay. and, yeah. and so, so similar to what like the credit card companies do mm -hmm. with your, when, you know how you get the, the mm -hmm. phone calls, the like, did you such. go yeah. to Target exactly. on this yes. date? Well, no, I didn't. <laughs> so draw patterns can tell a similar story because people are going to draw in certain ways. And, yeah. and when something is wrong or when something might be fraudulent, you're going to see certain patterns happen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think that's some, some data that we are you know, maybe not tapping as much as we could, but data analytics mm -hmm. is coming, That's and good. and the OIG is has units devoted exactly, to exactly, data analytics. Yeah, yeah. If we can get there with data analytics, that'll be the the, the real solution because it's mm -hmm. the the, the uh, volume of information, the volume of data, and the very variation of grantee practices is so great right. that realistically, uh, you know, one person, a team of people cannot process that much information on paper or through spreadsheets and figure it out in the big picture. Right. Well, so let's get into some um, common issues you all see out there. And again, this is partly educational to the grantees themselves. You know, what are, what are things that we should be thinking about and making sure that, you know, we're on our game here so we're doing these things properly. I mean, I know documentation policies is always a huge thing, um, but also just, I mean, what do you see as far as some internal control issues, segregations of funds, commingling, things like that. I mean, yeah, give me some thoughts on that. What, what are you seeing out there that are common issues? I think one common area that is uh, very important for grantees to embrace uh, but, but do correctly is in-kind matching contributions. Yes. Okay. Because, right. because every federal, most every federal grant comes with a matching requirement. Matching so meaning... Explain that for everybody so you kind of... Well, there, there's two ways a... Uh, an, a two ways I've experienced that an agency will publicize uh, matching requirements. Our agency, our, what our agency does is says, um, you must match 50% mm -hmm. of the, the, prod, the program cost. So that means that a $200,000 program will, will involve $100,000 of federal funds mm -hmm. and $100,000 of matching funds right. or in-kind contributions. That's the in-kind. And that's your 200, that's the, that's con in our agency that's considered 50% match. When I was with HHS, that would have been considered 100% match. Okay. So it you have to be very alert to the phraseology and the program you're competing, mm -hmm. and un make sure you understand what you're uh, what you're committing to for matching requirements. So it's well, I'm just curious when you say in kind too, because I know some sometimes it's different. So are we talking about actual cash or values of things and assets that would also equal up to the hundred in that case? The, the cash. Cash matching mm -hmm. is when you're spending a, your your partner's dollars or your dollars directly to pay the cost of the grant program. Right. Okay. So that's cash that's match. That's cash match. Yeah. In kind contributions are where you're using the uh, goods or services that are donated to your program, mm. um, and your You have a system and policy of documenting the value of those goods or services. Okay. To um, put them in a market value. That, that is a fair value that yeah. you can then post to your accounting system. So we often find okay. um, a, a less than a, a lower quality policy on documenting these contributions, and then we find that many accounting systems have not been uh, coded to track the value of the in-kind contributions. So we, mm -hmm. when we're visiting a grantee, we're 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 seeing them scrambling to tally up a lot of paperwork yes. and, and come up with a, a summation of their ma in-kind matching right. uh, that, that ideally their accounting system should have a, a methodical way of coding into their into their records and, and, uh, and basically spewing out the, the quarterly, monthly, or the financial reports that they have so they know where they stand 
right. on the path of meeting their, their match in a timely manner. Yeah, they have to track that separately too. So mm -hmm. if, if you've got the award, you have to track your federal funds separately from your match funds. Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to, to show it in a, in a ledger. And, and what we see is they're not valuing the match appropriately according to market standards, especially labor rates. Uh, so, um, correct. So yes. Very and, and labor rates is probably one of the easiest things to, think, to get right. value for <laughs> because the Bureau of Labor Statistics mm -hmm. has significant data out sure. there. Uh, so what we see is that they just they just don't take the time to get that value right. Right. And there's plenty of models. It's not difficult to search the web for models of in-kind uh, matching contribution documentation. And they're, they're out there. You just have to do the hard work of building up a, a portfolio of policies. If you, if you really intend to stay in the federal grant recipient arena for a, a meaningful amount of time, uh, by year three, if you don't have a full set of policies across the major points of the uniform guidance, you, you're gonna find yourself in trouble because yes. you're gonna hit that audit cycle and you're gonna start seeing um, uh, uh, consequences of not having mm -hmm. policies and documentation of all those dollars you've matched or, or spent directly. Yes, written policies and procedures are very, very important. We see that's usually probably one of our our most common finding right. is that they don't have written policies and procedures in place. Mm -hmm. And um, and then if they are doing sub awards, they need to have written policies and procedures for their entire sub award life cycle, not just their monitoring. They need to talk about how they're going to do their pre award, how they're going to award these, what they're going to do for post award monitoring, and how they're going to close them, and how all of that wraps up into their own closure. Right, and relatively speaking, you would think policies, procedures would be not that difficult. I mean, compared to some other things you have to do, it's probably one of the easier things. And it's, I mean, how do you run this enterprise without knowing what your procedures are and having them on paper, you know? I just think it's, that's just, I think that's something that everybody should really take to heart. Yes. And let's get these things on paper, not just because it's required, the auditor's coming, but how do we know how to make decisions here or what we're doing, what's our, how do we run this? business enterprise, whatever it may be. Well, you, you do you do encounter grantees who've been in the found, re recipients of foundation funding mm -hmm. for a long time, and now they're dipping into um, the competitions for federal funds. Right. And it, it is a paradigm change when okay. you have a foundation funding that's really focused on programmatic outcomes mm -hmm. and a lot of programmatic metrics and reporting along that way, but very little accounting and administrative metrics or examination of of those types of um, uh, aspects of okay. receiving and spending funds from, from a third party. So uh, the federal government has uh, rules on both sides now, and, and if they're not alert to that change and not planning to, um, to build that policy base to that, that supports the, the, the federal funding that they go after, they're, they're gonna get themselves in trouble. Right. Well, I, I just wanted to add on internal controls too. It's important to have you know things like your cash management, um, internal controls, and, and your accounts receivable, accounts payable, all, all of that kind of stuff. And COSO brought internal controls to the for-profit world, which then ended up extending into the government world. So you you know you covered all that, but where it didn't really reach was not-for-profit world. Mm. And so, Correct. you know, all of these regulations coming out talking about internal controls are somewhat new to not-for-profits, and a lot of times these are fairly small, relatively flat agencies, and they don't have a lot of um, a lot of staffing. So they're going to struggle even with things like segregation of duties. Right. Oh yeah. And then even small agencies or small offices, same thing as grantees. That's a common business issue for yes. sure. Gr grantees should strongly consider. Um, looking into networks and associations 
to leverage what their partners and their their um, association partners can can offer to them as advice in, in, in a two-way street mm -hmm. of experiences and um, it what we found in, in my agency today is that the um, the, the grantees who receive our AmeriCorps grants, our VISTA grants, and our um, Senior Corps grants, they, they view themselves as partners amongst themselves too. Oh. So they, they freely share uh, their experiences, they freely share their policies, and, and they, they need to do that because we, we avoid uh, direct accountability. Uh, federal agencies typically avoid direct accountability for spelling out exactly the tool you must use. We, we take the position that we're not going to develop a single tool for every recipient to use to solve each each requirement. Mm -hmm. uh, that we believe you you will have different needs, different situations, uh, and you'll have to craft those policies and those tools to fit your needs and your situations, yet still comply with the rules and regulations. Right, because right. they also have different legal environments. Yes. And so we do get asked a lot, can you provide, you know, um, some policies and procedures for us, and and, and we can't. And you know, a lot that's of it, a, and sometimes sub-recipient agreements, and, and we say, well, we can't because you're in you're in a unique legal environment that we're we're not in. Right. Okay. Well, I want to get to a couple more topics today um, before we wrap up. But I am curious to just understand for you guys, what's what are the, some of the most important things you're looking at at a couple different stages of the life cycle of a grant? So pre-award, post-award, closeout. Maybe just a couple highlights on some of the most important things to think about at those stages. Okay, so pre-award, we're we're looking to to basically check off the boxes. You know, is their application complete? Mm -hmm. um, have they filled out the financial capability questionnaire? Um, what do they look like from a pre-award risk standpoint? What do their peer review scores look like? Scored them right. And and then you bring all that information together, and then you might have some other factors uh, that you use to make a funding decision. And that's you know you might have geographic dispersity or some other other things, but all of that needs to be articulated and articulated well in the funding recommendation memo. Um, and then in post award, you know we're looking for compliance, performance, and, and making sure that they're reaching those goals. Mm -hmm. you know, we, we want them to, to, to do the project that they said they were going to do. Exactly. We want them to achieve that. And then close out. Right. Close out is an issue, and I know we were going to talk about the GONE Act a little bit. Yeah, we can talk about it. Yeah. Um, but close out is an issue because a lot of grantees forget to submit their close out documentation. Hmm. And so then we end up with all these awards that are kind of just hanging out there. Um, they've drawn most of the funds, but not all the funds. Right. We don't really know where they stand. Well, you're right. exactly. And so then we have to move through an administrative closeout process. And, and, but it's really important that they have a process to, to close out their award, finalize that ledger, get that final FFR, those final progress and performance reports, and get those in. And, and late, and you know, everything Lucy said is, is the same with um, agencies I've worked with. And um, what I want to connect that to is, um, grants officers have a uh, grant and program officers have a wide variety of responsibilities. They they are they are under enormous pressure to do things in a timely fashion. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we do automate fairly well is the um, due dates and the tracking of program progress reports (PPRs) mm -hmm. and federal financial reports (FFRs). So if you receive a federal grant, the first and for sure thing that's going to happen is you're going to have deadlines for the submission of your PPRs and FFRs. Right. Uh, if you don't hit those deadlines, uh, you're going to be immediately flagged, mm. immediately, and if you create a pattern of not meeting them, particularly a closeout with the deadlines for closeout, 
you, you'll be at our agency, you'll be blocked for future funding, mm. continuations, renewals. So the simplest of things is to meet deadlines on reporting. In it's, our it's agency, if you don't file those on time, your funds are automatically frozen. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not messing around. <laughs> <laughs> and and I mean that as we've the the uniform guidance, um, and I, I won't have the acronym exactly straight right now. I'm gonna. I think it's a FAPIS, a Federal yes. Award in Performance, Performance Information in System, something like that. Yes. Right. <laughs> right, so right. so we the the grants uh, the contract world has been the federal contract world has been using FAPIS for years. Mm -hmm. Uh, they have a pretty robust set of past performance records to look at, but we're now just now dipping our toes into using it as we're re being required to. So in the next 10 years, FAPIS should build a pretty robust set of past performance records for federal agencies to look at. And, and the thing about that is um, negative performance, there, there's some standards on negative performance has to be put into the system. Okay. So as we get better at having our grant systems flag bad performance and flag that we have to put it into this central FAPIS database, um, then you know, Lucy's agency will be awarding a grant and looking at it and say, oh, well, they've not performed very well over here at this other agency, mm -hmm. and then he be hesitant to endorse the, the award of that grant or even continuation. Mm -hmm. right. that, that is coming and there are government-wide discussions on, on leveraging you know the the risk assessments and, and what's going on at a government-wide level we're not very we're not efficient I mean I think that's that's reality and and I know that it's been being tackled since the uh, the, the George Bush president years where mm -hmm. he, he initiated some egov um, e-government uh, initiatives under his administration right. that led to grants.gov yeah. and yeah. Uh, Funding.gov became USA Spending. Yep. So it, we've been at it for a good 20 years. Mm -hmm. We've made a lot of big leaps, but there's a lot to be done. And as as uh, software gets more sophisticated and as we we're, we see more pressure to align our software systems, mm -hmm. we're going to see uh, that it'll be a lot easier to flag problems across agencies. Right. So, uh, just one more thing. So, yeah, I, I was helping my, one of my clients with financial reporting for this year, and uh, looking at A136, and there's this GON Act in here. What is, what is this GON Act? Because my agency doesn't do any work with grants. So, But just give me a little quick snippet for everybody on the GON Act and why, why it's out and why it's important. Do you want to begin, Lucy? Or you, you, you? <laughs> <laughs> I know the GON Act for us, we had to basically report on all of our um, grants that were like I said, in closure mm -hmm. or past their period of performance, but had not officially closed yet. Right. And and the the reason is that there's money associated with those awards. Mm -hmm. So say you have an award for uh, two hundred thousand dollars, and it's past a period of performance, but the recipient has only drawn one hundred fifty thousand dollars. There's fifty thousand dollars there of unobligated funds, and until you get that award closed, mm -hmm. that money is 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 tied up, there. so That's to right. speak. Mm -hmm. uh, so the GON Act was basically designed to, you know, force agencies to yeah. put in processes to identify those and make sure that they're closing them out, they're taking care of those deobligations, and and getting them swept back to Treasury, so to mm -hmm. speak. Mm -hmm. And you have to the, the reports that each agency issues is the grants that are unclosed after two years 
since the performance period has ended. Right. So Congress was pretty gentle to us, I, I believe, by having sure. a two-year threshold. Um, what happens is you have to report, I believe it's the top 30, the oldest 30 of that pool mm -hmm. that are two years without having closed. Um, you have to explain uh, exactly why you've not closed those, those oldest 30. Right. And uh, we just put together, OMB just put together the uh, government-wide report. I, I believe HHS was tagged with the responsibility to assemble the reports from all the agencies and put it together as a report to Congress, which may be publicly available at this point. So um, it, it's, as, as Congress expects these problems to be delayed with our own performance as eight federal agencies, uh, I, I know we're, we're working hard to, we, we had about, I believe we had about 250, maybe slightly more, but I know that some agencies had you know, thousands of unclosed grants, and mm -hmm. so they have uh, major problems to tackle, and we all want to get those those problems resolved. So you're gonna see, grantees will see um, a lot of attention being put on old records that they, yeah. they should have retained. Yes, and so this has come up with us too in, in terms of uh, we just um, had an audit on closeouts and um, the OIG went out to several grantees and, and audited their, their records in association with that. And what they were finding is that grantees were not holding their records for the t prescribed time period mm -hmm. past the uh, closeout. Right. Uh, so I think the, the rule is they have to have them for three years past the closeout, the later of when it's closed or when an audit ha is completely closed. Mm. Uh, so that's really important to remember is keep those records and make them uh, available. Yeah, they have to, um, after they submitted all their reports, which often we're not closing them because they haven't submitted the reports, but once they have the reports submitted, they, they have to have them for three years. So it's not just the final report of year one of your grant. If you have a three, four, five year grant, you'll have three years after you've submitted that, that report. If it takes you a year to submit the report, so now you're in year six, You'll have records that will reach back, reach across nine years. Right. You're, you're at, the, at the third year of retention, you're, you're holding records that are nine years old. Yeah. So if you get audited sometime in those three years, um, for example, and they're looking, they pull some, some samples for expenditures and you can't support those expenditures, it's not going to be allowed and, right. and the money's going to have to come back. Right. No, I think the lesson is document, document, document. Yes. So and digital, so digital records are digital acceptable. Is, yes, they okay. are. So, they are so acceptable. finally, that's, that's uh, 10 years ago, that question was like, uh, well, I don't know. Right, right, <laughs> but, right. I mean, I think we've certainly gotten to the point where uh, scanned and digital record keeping is, is, is acceptable and common. And yes. common. Yes. Well, grants is a very deep subject, but I think we skimmed the surface here. <laughs> but I, I think it was a great discussion. I thank you guys for, for being here today. Oh, and, you're welcome. Uh, you're welcome. Yeah, I think I'm, I, I think I might try to reach out to some actual grantees and do some podcasts. I want to hear their perspective. <laughs> all these feds are coming down. That would be really interesting. Uh, yes. But yeah, and then maybe some sub grantees. I'm just curious to see what how they you know how they see this whole thing from their side. So, and but yeah, thanks again for uh, appreciate it, Doug. And Thank you. Thanks again for joining us on Accountability Talks. Make sure to check out our website on www.agacgfm.org. There you'll find several episodes available. You can also subscribe via iTunes, Google Play. And we'll be having a few more podcasts coming up this month and many more next month. Hope you'll tune in and look forward to seeing you at the next Accountability Talks with AGA.